listening to Chill Spot Radio. Mental health, especially amongst people of color, has long been stigmatized, inadvertently keeping our people from accessing and reaching mental well-being. This podcast aims to transform stigma into strength. Your hosts work in the mental health field, bearing in their experience within the mental health profession. We thank you for your time in this brave space. Welcome to the Chill Spot Radio. Uh, this is episode uh, 11. Perfect. No, no, 12. Ah, um, today we have uh, our guest, uh, Michael Hughes, who is actually um, my therapist. Um, and uh, I am your host, Jared, and my co-host, this is Dr. Alan Lipscomb. Welcome back, family. And um, I'll let Michael Hughes introduce himself. Uh, he's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and he's been one for many, many years. Take it away. Uh, yeah, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist here in Los Angeles. I have been licensed since 1979. Um, I have a practice on the west side of Los Angeles. And I work with um, adult individuals, uh, some adolescent individuals, couples, and families. And can you tell us a, a little bit about just um, your journey, um, getting started with uh, therapy? What, what brought you into it as a, an African-American male, you know, all the way back in the 70s? Hmm. Well, um, actually, I started as a paraprofessional in 1971, uh, a couple of months before my 19th birthday. I had started my undergraduate education in the Cal State system. Um, there were only, I think, two lower division psychology courses that were available to me. Uh, but and I took the first one, which I guess was Psych 101 or whatever they called it at that time, in my freshman year. At the end of my freshman year, late in my freshman year, I happened to meet a person totally inadvertently who was a paraprofessional counselor at a clinic called the Southern California Counseling Center. And the, the woman that I met had been at the clinic that earlier that day and was just talking about her experience there in this first conversation that I ever had with her. I was introduced to her by a friend and I was avidly interested in everything she reported about her experience that day. Uh, and she suggested that I apply to be a counselor. I did. I didn't know that there was an adolescent peer counseling program. Uh, I was initially accepted as an adolescent peer counselor and started the very first day I was accepted uh, with my first client, who was an 11 year old girl. Um, in those days, the clinic was very much sort of a seat of the pants kind of an operation. And after about six months, I think I saw my first adult client. Um, and I was all of about 19 and a half years old. I was a paraprofessional for seven years there, uh, 
I also worked for almost two years at the Kedron Community Mental Health Center when it was just a community mental health center and not an overall health center, center in South uh, East Los Angeles. Um, I worked at a couple of other clinics along the way in those seven and a half or eight years of paraprofessional work. And I've been a licensed private practitioner uh, for 42 years. Um, I've been a supervisor. I've taught uh, at Antioch University here for about seven years in the 90s. And I love the work. Um, I, it's funny you ask about how what drew me to it because I think it was sort of just my nature. I think that by my adolescence, I was a person who by that time in my life, I was a person that a lot of people that I knew talked to more sort of openly and freely about things that were going on with them than they did with most other people. Uh, I was always fascinated and, and engaged by people's stories. Um, I think a lot of what I saw and, and heard in growing up made me sort of frustrated and curious, frustrated that <laughs> as a child, I felt that adults always talked around what was actually going on. I, I was very impatient with that. Um, I just, I wanted to make sense of things and I, I wanted to make sense of realities in human experience. Some that I observed, some that I, I overheard, but I just, I had this powerful urge to understand life better and eventually to help people make sense of it and find their way more effectively. Um, and saying all that, I can also say quite honestly, if I probably, if I'd understood what it was I was leaping into at 19 and not quite 19, I probably wouldn't have had the nerve to do it. Uh, my ignorance was very helpful. That's great. And how's it been being a uh, a male of color, particularly African American male here in Los Angeles, um, and, and working on the West Side? Um, you know, um, most likely expect most of your patients probably would have been in. Uh, you know, Central LA or South Central LA. Um, tell, tell, talk to us about, you know, your experience working with people on the West Side and being Black. Well, in the course of 42 years, um, I've had a lot of African-American clients, not to mention other people of color as clients as well as white clients throughout my entire career. Um, I, it, but I have to say the makeup of my practice has evolved over the decades. 
And a lot more African-American clients have sought my services as the years have gone by. Uh, at this point, I would say my practice is probably generally about three quarters African-American clients. And that's been gratifying and, and satisfying and a really happy outcome for me. Um, when I started out, there were a lot fewer African-American therapists, but there were also a lot fewer African-American people who were inclined to seek this sort of service. Not only in private practice, but even in the clinic settings that I work in. Yeah, so you've gotten to see the the destigmatization in our community. Uh, Absolutely. One of the things that has really been uh, a joy for me in the past decade is that I've had so many clients in their 20s who are self-referred. Young African-American clients who want to make better sense of things, get some support, get some help sorting out issues, sorting out questions of their lives. Um, and that just is a huge difference from, I'd say even the first 20 years of my career, at least. Where, where are they finding you? How are they getting connected to you for the younger folks? Uh, a lot of them find me uh, through my listing on uh, the Psychology Today app. Um, some of them are referred to me by uh, health insurance companies. In, in particular, I'm a network panelist uh, with one insurance entity and that's been a, an ongoing source of referrals over the years. But uh, um, my listing on the Psychology Today site has been a real consistent source of self-referrals, um, which is kind of interesting because it, it took me probably a couple of years after I first started to put myself on there uh, to end up with a short presentation that seems to work well, that seems to convey what I want and need to convey to prospective clients. Uh, it, it can be remarkably difficult to boil down a practice and an approach into about three paragraphs. And I actually worked on those three paragraphs repeatedly over a span of a few months. And finally, several years ago, came to a point of feeling like it said what I needed to say or I, that I couldn't come any closer to saying what I needed to say. And from that point, 
it's generated a lot of calls. Yeah, one of the things, and that... of course, I, I have I get referrals from from clients as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that we talk about is is visibility and representation, and so that being visible, right on, on Psychology Today, the the website, and folks being able to see it, read a snippet about what you focus on. Um, they're coming in, you know, similar to what I found when I went into private practice uh, nine years ago this June was as soon as I had my picture and everything on Psychology Today, mm-hmm. that's when I started to see Black folks. Uh, majority yeah. were Black folks coming in, Black males yeah. were coming in uh, for services, which you know, I shared this with my students, it, it went against what I learned in my master's program and even in my doctoral program, that that would be the number one population I would see in a private practice setting. You know, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't say mm-hmm. that. So it definitely matters. Um, it absolutely matters, yeah. And You know, again, as I said, it, it's been an evolution in terms of the makeup of my practice. Um, but what you said brought to mind um, something that I've heard uh, my friend, uh, Dr. Ken Hardy say many times over the years. Um, Ken is uh, probably one of the two best known African-American marriage and family therapists in the country. Uh, he is at Drexel in Philadelphia now after a number of years at Syracuse. And he often says that he was trained to be a good white therapist. And he had to learn how to translate that into being a good black therapist, a good therapist for African-American clients. And I, I certainly understand that and relate to it very well. Um, I, I think it may have been a little easier for me because I, I, was, I was trained in such a a kind of an unorthodox setting. Because um, fundamentally, I learned to do the work from learning from doing the work. And I started at such a young age. And the, the folks that took me in and trained me all worked from pretty conventional, traditional theoretical orientations, but they made sure, and they were not African-American folks, but they made sure I was exposed to an array of theoretical perspectives. And the the Southern California Counseling Center was uh, an environment in which uh, certain clinical creativity was very much encouraged um, because it only existed because of fairly creative thinking on the part of the two guys that, that had founded it. Because uh, they believed that they could train and supervise lay people to provide meaningful services. Um, 
I had a question, and I, I hope I remember to get back to it because I, I want to ask this other question, intriguing, that um, the way, or more of a topic, the way that you, you know, you converse with your Black patients, how different is that, would you say, than you do with some of your other patients? Well, quite a bit different in that, first of all, Black patients often overtly refer to their experience as Black people. <laughs> and our dialogues often include those direct references. And I mean, I, I, I'm thinking of a, of a, a visit I had with two clients who are a young adult daughter and an adult mother uh, in a family in which I do family therapy and actually also do individual work with the members of the family, um, this particular three-person family. And I, I found myself needing to kind of offer some African-American historical perspective to the young adult client in the session that the three of us had last week. Um, in this case, she, she was talking about her feminist sensibility and some of the ways in which it's been received in the family and in the extended family as well. And I, I frame my response to that partly from an African-American historical standpoint. Um, that would have been a very different conversation if those clients weren't black, even if it had been a, a young woman and her mother and the subject of the young woman's feminism had come up. I wouldn't have couched my responses to that in the context of African-American life in all likelihood. What about... Uh... And that's just one example. What about in the ways that you utilize interventions? Have you noticed a difference? Um, can you give me a little more to work with? Okay. Yeah, when you're you know, I guess I'm just going by what you said about your, your colleague um, or your friend. He was trained to be a, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a really good white therapist. Oh, and, well, I, 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 think, I think for me, it starts before the interventions. Even I think it starts with my stance in the, the, in the, the space, in the clinical space. Hmm. Um, 
I'm I'm less formal. I'm more personal, I think, in tone than I suspect. Well, then people were trained to be when I was trained. I don't know exactly how that is now. <laughs> but I had, um, I've had two therapists in my life, uh, each of whom was an older white male psychoanalyst by training. And the second guy was a, a bright, flexible guy who um, I, I learned some positive stuff from being his client. The first guy um, I, I was referred to in a, in a moment of my life uh, in which I suddenly had an urgent need for a therapist about three years into my own clinical experience. Um, and as soon as I, and, and he was, um, a fairly well-respected well psychoanalyst. He was a guy in his sixties. Um, and he was the guy who had, um, he had four suits. He wore a suit and shirt and tie to the office every day. He had four suits. Uh, within a month or two, I could tell you which suit he was going to have on the day of our appointment because I knew the rotation. Um, he tried hard to join with me. He was very sincere, and he definitely had my best interests at heart, but he didn't really know how to join with a 24-year-old young African-American male client at least not very well. And within a month or so, I recognized something that was enormously significant for me. I recognized that I had skills that he didn't have, skills that had clinical relevance, skills that I was already used to deploying that he didn't have, uh, in part having to do with how to engage with and how to join with clients. And I don't think it's ever been my nature to be formal and, and at a, 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 that sort of professional distance from my clients. But um, I became very conscious of that in the course of being this guy's client or patient myself. And I think, generally speaking, it's made it easy for people to talk. And I think it starts there for me. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit, you know, you've been providing clinical work, you said, for over 40 years. 
and I am interested in the longevity of it, but also looking at just over the past 10 years, over the past five years, et cetera, with everything that's happening, not that it's new with, with what's happening um, racially with Black folk, how have you managed to, or how do you go about managing your own well-being, care, mental health, et cetera, while also providing services to Black folk? Um. I think one of the most basic aspects is that I have a sense of humor that I have relied on to make my way through life forever. Uh, and I find humor anywhere and everywhere I can. Um, I, I am very fortunate to be um, successfully coupled to a, a, a person I've been coupled to for one degree or another for 45 years. Um, that goes a long way. Um, my closest friend since ninth grade is a physician and we as part of our ongoing dialogue we talk to each other about the realities of being a, a clinician in each of our respective fields um and we're able to do that in a way that's just two friends talking. It's not clinical, it's not formal, but that has had enormous value too. Um, the evolution of my practice has also been nourishing for me. And I'm not sure I thought of it in exactly those terms, until this moment answering your question, but the infusion of young adults into my practice in the past decade has been, maybe like revitalizing kind of in the sense that I was getting to a point where I had begun to worry that my practice was going to age out, you know, that I was not going to be a practitioner that younger people would have any interest in seeing. And that's turned out to be quite the contrary. So that sort of creeping concern that I had had for several years has pretty much been alleviated. And actually, this past year has been my busiest clinical year ever. Now, some of that has to do with the realities of this past year. For sure, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's been, it, it has been a hell of a year. That part. Uh, unlike any other. Um, 
but the the need is immense and, and people's willingness to partake has been commensurate with the need and uh, I, I feel very very fortunate to be to still be here to be doing this work and I'm very fortunate because it's the only thing I've really the only thing I've ever done to make a living. I mean, you know, I, I had several jobs as a very young person, but people don't necessarily get a chance to to do something that they love to do to make a living at all. And I've gotten to do that for my entire adult life. That's great. Yeah, and um, and I, I mentioned at the beginning that uh, Michael is uh, my therapist that I've uh, been in since I was like 11 or 12. Um, and you mentioned that you thought you would age out. I, um, um, I find it interesting because uh, one of the reasons that, uh, you know, I've been able to find a lot of value, I think, is because especially later on in life is because of that, uh, you know, you being far older, um, and I don't mean that in any <laughs> disrespect, but having ex experience being a black male in West LA um, and navigating some of those challenges, um, you know, having to code switch as, as you said in, in your profession, um, uh, how you know you uh, that approach, but um, you know, kind of uh, converse with uh, people of color versus non-people of color, um, and you know that's just that's been a thing for me uh, all my life, um, and so I I think it's I think that's something you and I have in common. I mean, I yeah that. It, Realistically, that starts for me when I was about three and a half. The code switching and the the sort of dual track, sometimes straddling, crossing back and forth kind of existence. And which is something I think a lot of uh, you know the students that we have, uh, Dr. Lipscomb, experience, but don't know how to articulate it, and don't even know that that's what their experience. I find that we. I bring that up in supervision a lot. Um, and, and I do remember it from a very young age as well. Um, I don't know about three, but um, it, it's been very much uh, an uh, ongoing topic <laughs> uh, in life. It's, it's a heavy burden to carry. And, and it, it has become far more frequent a topic in my work than it used to be. Partly because clients, far more clients arrive with a, a consciousness of this aspect of their lives than used to be the case. Um, partly because I think it's, ju it's just a more widely discussed and recognized thing in the not only African-American culture, but in the society. 
than it used to be. Absolutely. I mean, that speaks to where we're at today in 2021. And I think your your practice and the folks that are coming in really mirror where we are at um, as a society, as a country, as Black folk uh, as well. Any advice, yeah, any advice you would give to young Black males coming into this profession or thinking about coming into the helping profession as it relates to mental health? And then any thoughts for folks who might be listening, um, young, again, Black folk who might be listening, and they're wondering if therapy is a space for them that's gonna really affirm, validate, and see them. What would you give to those two groups? One who's interested in coming into the field and then the other one who's interested in possibly getting some mental health support. Um, maybe I'll answer the first question first, or the second question first. Um, For those who are considering seeking help, I, I strongly encourage it. Um, find, try to find a practitioner that you feel, first of all, it looks and sounds to you like they might be able to appreciate and understand you and your life. Um, trust that it's something you're entitled to and that it's not something that's a bad thing to do. It's not something that means there's something wrong with you. I think we've moved away to an enormous degree from the sort of traditional perspective that, as Jared alluded to earlier, the stigma, which frankly boiled down to, if you want to talk to somebody, you must be crazy. To put it colloquially, if not clinically, you, you know, if you went and talked to somebody, you were putting yourself in position for someone to tell you you were crazy. And certainly, um, the experience that African Americans had with mental health practitioners for many decades was not typically with practitioners that looked or sounded like them or had anything like their life experience. And um, traditional. psychiatry and other clinical services included a tremendous risk of a person being erroneously diagnosed, erroneously assessed. Um, so it's not at all strange that people were reluctant to partake of those services. Much, 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 much has changed. Uh, one of the things is, that's 
a treat for me when I need to look, for example, at the Psychology Today site to come up with names to refer people to is that I see so many young African-American practitioners like yourself. Uh, you know, the, the, when I started out even 35 years ago, even, even 10 years into my practice, the people that I knew, the African-American practitioners that I knew almost all worked on the campus at UCLA. Uh, my first um, situation after I was licensed was working with a psychiatrist who was not black. Um, he had been my last clinical supervisor and uh, up until the time I was licensed, he was my, my last clinical supervisor for the last couple of years before I, I was licensed. And I started working with him and uh, through him, and our office was a half block from the campus. It was in Westwood Village, a half block from campus. And I ended up being acquainted with a bunch of the clinical people on the UCLA campus in the years that I was involved with him. Um, and the other black clinicians that I knew early in my career were all people that worked on the UCLA campus. There, there weren't there just weren't many private practitioners. And um, it's just very gratifying for me to see all those pictures and names of young folks like you. <laughs> and when I say that, it makes me feel ancient. <laughs> uh, you are a trailblazer, yeah, you are uh, not ancient. You I are need a, a legend. I need, I need, you are a legend. Well, you made it possible for well, you know, I, folks like I, myself. My my senior colleagues, when I started out, I, none of them were black, but they were all older than me. I mean, my all all of the people that that taught me and encouraged me and made this possible made the life I've had in this field possible, uh, I don't think more than two or three of them were black. And they were all older. And so, yeah, I spent most of my career still sort of being younger than most of the colleagues that I was connected to. So it's particularly interesting to have arrived at the geezer stage. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Uh, your uh, your first question for me again. Uh, for those the question coming, you asked a question yeah, about those coming into the I profession would, for those in entering the field entering the field. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's important to. Take what you're being taught seriously, but give yourself permission to take what strikes you as clearly, culturally bankrupt, 
Take it with a grain of salt. And if you have the good fortune to find your way to clinical training that does involve a major cultural component, by all means, take advantage of that. Um, don't become so discouraged if you don't find that right away. And if that's not a, a sufficient or significant part of your education, don't become so discouraged that you give up on the work because there's so much more support and so much more context for, for culturally conscious and culturally competent and culturally relevant clinical work than there's ever been before. Uh, when I taught at Antioch in the 90s, I taught for four years, I think 16 out of 17 quarters, I taught a course in the master's program for people who in 80% or more of them were intending to become clinicians. And the whole program was based on a sort of a, we weren't using the word, the term social justice yet then, but um, a socially conscious sort of premise and model. Uh, but still, there was only one 10 week, one quarter course that was specifically called multicultural counseling. There were other courses and the entire program was intended to help people do the single most important thing necessary for them to be effective across cultures in doing this work, which is to understand who oneself is, who oneself is culturally, where one's cultural identity situates one in terms of power differentials. Um, and as often as not, probably more often than that, what that fundamentally meant was for me that I was trying to help my students, the I'd say 70% or more of whom were white, leave the quarter that I taught them with an increased understanding of what it meant that they were white and a curiosity to continue to learn more about what it meant that they were white. Because I, at that time, I was very much trying to prepare people with the idea that they, they would be seeing black clients and other clients of color. And I did not want, I, I, I wanted to encourage them. I wanted to empower them to do that as thoughtfully and intelligently as possible. Yeah. And it seems like uh, that is something that we, we continue to have to teach today. Mm, yes. Yeah. 
Well, um, we want to say thank you, Michael, for joining us today. Yes, thank um, you. Thank you. What an honor. Uh, it has been a pleasure. Really, really appreciate um, you coming to, to talk to our audience. Um, obviously, you know, I'm very appreciative uh, of you um, and our Likewise. sessions. Um, so it's a treat for me to be able to share uh, your uniqueness and your uh, wisdom um, you know, with those I, I work with and, um, you know, in this project that Dr. Lipscomb and I are, have been doing. Thank you very much. Pleasure to meet you, Dr. Lipscomb. Likewise, family, appreciate <laughs> you. And we will share your information um, with this episode for those of you who are interested in learning more, referring to Mr. Michael Hughes, please, uh, access the information under this episode link. Yeah. And uh, thank you for listening and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to the Chill Spot Radio. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on our webpage at chillspotradio.com.